Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A nation is in mourning after the death of an Irish peacekeeper in Lebanon, the first death of a Defence Force member in combat in more than two decades. Anything we say will be insufficient to uh, deal with the grief which his mother must be uh, carrying at this present time. A new survey says cancer patients are cutting back on heating due to the spiralling cost of living. And later we bring you the latest in a dramatic week of testimony in the Regency murder trial. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. begin tonight with the shocking death of an Irish peacekeeper in Lebanon. Private Sean Rooney was killed when his convoy came under attack as it travelled to Beirut last night. Another colleague was wounded. The head of the Defence Forces has said the killing of a young soldier in Lebanon has deeply wounded the organisation. It's a dark day for Ogling Heron when we have to mourn the loss of one of our colleagues and one of our friends. When somebody dies in service, it's felt throughout the whole organisation and it deeply wounds the organisation. Well, here's how the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, reacted to the news. The vehicles, for whatever reason, got separated and then one of the vehicles was uh, surrounded by what I can only describe as a mob uh, who, uh, who were uh, very aggressive uh, towards the vehicle. Uh, shots were fired uh, and uh, unfortunately one of our personnel lost his life. Well, let's bring in Mark Keane, President of the Permanent Defence Force, Other Ranks Representative Association, better known as PD Fora. Mark, you're very welcome uh, to the programme tonight. This is the first death, as we said, of a Defence Forces member in combat in 23 years. Private Sean Rooney killed in that gun attack and... Three of his fellow soldiers were also injured and one of them was very seriously injured. We're also thinking of uh, Private Shane Carney um, from Killa in Cork who was also injured in the, uh, that attack. Can you put in words the sense of, of loss and the sense of shock in the force tonight um, at this, this fatal attack on, on one of your own? Uh, thank you very much, Claire. It's it's a very dark and tragic day for Ulluk Naharan. Our, our members are deeply shocked and upset, naturally enough. Uh, the, the military family takes something like this. The, the heart it has, as the Chief of Staff has said there, it's wounded all of us. It, and as I said, it's a dark day for all of us within the Defence Forces. There's been many tributes paid to Private Sean Rooney, a young man from Donegal. Um, who was based uh, in Dundalk, we know. But what, what have army colleagues, what have people been saying about him tonight as this news has filtered through? 
Uh, one, that he was a professional soldier, that he went about his duty, that he he wanted to serve. He was proud to wear the uniform. He was proud to, serve, to wear the Blue Beret. This was his second trip overseas, that he had very much been in the prime of his life, the start of his career. He had so much to offer. Everyone has rallied around today, which is something we'd always expect the military community to do and the military family to do. It, our, our thoughts and prayers are with his family tonight, Private Sean Rooney's family, and actually enough, we pray for a speedy recovery for Trooper Shane Kearney. His family tonight had a vigil in Killa, and prayers were offered up. It is a very sad day, and as you said, it's since 1999 was the last time that a member of the Defence Forces was killed in active service. It brings home again to the harsh realities of soldiering that a soldiering in South Lebanon is a dangerous job, but it's a job that we've undertaken over many, many years. And actually, enough, we will continue to do so. There is an investigation now underway. Um, from from what you've talked about with, with your members at this point, what sort of sense are you getting of, of what happened and what happened to the soldiers last night um, and how they came to be in this situation and come under attack? Well, naturally enough, it's a very fluid situation. It's something that developed overnight, and we've seen the footage on TV and social media. It is frightening to see. I think the most important thing is that we allow the, the investigations reach their fruition. We also need to see what the UN report comes back with, because we serve under United Nations flag, so, and also to be the investigation by members of the Defence Forces. I think at this point, we need to let those investiga investigations run the course and then we will look back and see what we can change, what needs to be done differently if something needs to be done differently and where we go from here. Okay, Mark Keane from PD4, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. We appreciate it very much. Uh, let's get some reaction with Kevin Doyle, Group Head of News at Independent.ie. Uh, Kevin, uh, reaction today, we think we heard on all sides of the political spectrum at this awful news from Lebanon. And a reminder again, as we heard from Mark uh, there, that peacekeeping does not come without its dangers. No, absolutely. What actually struck me, Claire, is the time of year. Obviously, there's no good time for this, but in the more than, than yourselves in Virgin, in, in the Irish Independent, we're always planning around Christmas and what we're going to cover, and a staple of that Christmas, and it's on the list already, but it'll be coming off it now, is the happy reunion pictures at Dublin Airport of the mammies and daddies coming home from the Lebanon uh, in time for, for Christmas to their parents or their kids. And in the next few days, we're going to have a coffin coming home mm. to Dublin Airport. And that's going to be the airport pictures for the Defence Forces this year, rather than what we, we normally expect. And that just shows that perhaps we do take it for granted, the idea that that's what we assume will always happen, that they always come home happy uh, and that it's a joyful reunion. And it's not in this case. And it might be 20 years, but I think everybody was just stunned by this news when it broke. Yeah, before seven o'clock. Yeah, morning. and we heard again about the investigations taking place. A little more detail as well from Simon Coveney about what he understands to have happened and occurred there. But we will have to wait for those investigations to take place and to see what changes may have to come about um, with, with the peacekeeping mission in Lebanon. Yeah, so there, there are three military police from our own defence forces going out and a legal advisor in the next couple of days to start our own independent investigation, mm. uh, as well as the UN one and as well as the local. Uh, army one that will take place there. There's a lot of um, conflicting reports even tonight in terms of what have happened in the local media there have one version of events as to what happened. The UN's version I think is a little bit different into how the two vehicles got separated, how they ended up isolated and trapped uh, in this village and who exactly was behind that. Hezbollah, the militant group that control that area have denied that it's anything to do with them but Simon Coveney 
um, who you saw speaking at the UN there in New York, not accepting that at this point uh, and saying that Ireland will demand answers. And I think people want those answers fairly quickly because we still have over 300 troops out there and people will want to know how and why this happened. Yeah, we, indeed, and we will wait, uh, await those answers. And we are thinking of the grieving family of Private Sean Rooney tonight. Our thoughts um, on this programme are with um, the family and all those who knew him. Now, the cost of living crisis has hit the whole country hard. And with this week's cold weather, we have been feeling the pinch more. Imagine making these difficult decisions over turning the heat on and off while suffering from cancer. Well, a new survey suggests that that is exactly what is happening. Cancer patients are turning their heating off more often than others in the general public. And to discuss this more, I'm joined again by Kevin Doyle, is still with us. Pharmacist and former TD Kate O'Connell uh, joins us also on the programme tonight, as does Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee from Fianna Fáil and cancer patient John Walsh. Um, I'm also joined on Skype tonight by independent TD Michael Healy-Ray. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, John, I want to come to you first because the findings of this survey are contained um, in a report by the Irish Cancer Society and they spoke to some 569 households um, affected by cancer in this country. That's just a small proportion, of course, of households affected by cancer mm -hmm. in this country. And I think people will be really struck by these findings, the fact that in your situation, people are in very vulnerable situations and they're having to make very big decisions on basic things like heating um, because of financial worries. All the while, you're being, you're being treated for cancer. Tell us about your own situation, John. Thanks, Claire. Well, I was diagnosed in, with uh, stage four prostate cancer in 2019. Um, uh, one of the, the big things that hit for myself was the fact that um, I suffered a series of job losses during mm -hmm. um, the past three years, which I would directly attribute to um, cancer diagnosis. Um, uh, it le leaves you in a very, very vulnerable position, as I said, that uh, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable normally looking for handouts, but the, the, the loops you're put through in terms of trying to fill out forms, etc. is it, it makes it very difficult and it makes you feel like that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking for free handouts. Um, because my wife works part-time, she's slightly above the threshold mm -hmm. for a lot of the allowances that would be, um, should be available to us. Yeah. Um, so as a result of which we're tending to dip into a little bit of savings we have just to create this false economy really at home, whereby we're, we're spending 500 euro plus month out of that uh, money just to get by um, um, because of the treatment that makes you um, increasingly vulnerable um, it, it, it leaves you less um, enabled let's say uh, physically to go out and do the work I would have previously done as much as I want to work it's very difficult and it's very difficult for probably on the employer side as well I suppose mm -hmm. that you know th there's a lot of time and overhead on their behalf to allow you go um, to receive treatment to go meet with oncologists, which generally takes a day. Um, so what I've experienced is um, those appointments and treatment times were certainly in the latter number of jobs I, I was in. They basically, um, you, you have to take that as your own expense. So it's a, in a, you know, an additional cost yeah. in that regard. So. Because actually what, what struck me as well is in that particular report, um, it highlighted how a number of cancer patients will actually not go to their GP and not go to hospital because of the costs surrounding either getting there, 
parking, making that appointment, taking the time off work, that it's not feasible for them. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, I'm fortunate in that I eventually managed to get a medical card. It's another thing, uh, a bugbear, where it should be something that's automatically available to cancer patients or you know any serious patients with a serious illness. Um, uh, you, you do have to jump through those proverbial loops to get the medical card, which I'm in receipt of now. But I mean, again, you, in a few years' time, I'll probably have to chase that down again. Um, but I'm fortunate in that regard that that's provided me with, a, a, I suppose, a safety net in a, in a way. Um, and, you know, the high-tech the high medications are covered under a scheme as well. I can't remember exactly what that scheme but is. But you still so. have this, these out-of-pocket expenses every yes, month. And yeah. I think people may be surprised to hear, Lorraine, and, and this is just one case, John's case, that it's like €500 Euro per month, the outlay in terms of, you know, medication, treatment, other matters, maybe, you know, any, any mm -hmm. you know, special um, additional requirements that are needed as part of that treatment. And that cancer patients and their families are having to bear this burden when they're going through such a difficult time. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I spoke to John um, in the green room and just listening to him there, it's very, very harrowing when you're trying to balance this and it's costing your family over 500 euro a month just to stand still. Um, I read with interest the survey completed by um, cancer patients for the Irish Cancer Society and it is quite shocking. And the Irish Cancer Society is asking for a few things like say the automatic eligibility for the fuel allowance. I think that's a really, really sensible uh, ask and I think it's something that should be delivered I'm on. I'm wondering why it hasn't been thought of before now. Yeah, well, the, the fuel allowance is being expanded at the moment and more people are being brought into, into the net. And I know there are a number of my colleagues, like Catherine Arda, Senator Catherine Arda, who founded um, an all-party group on cancer support and cancer care within the Oireachtas, are advocating for these things. And I think it's something that but definitely is it going to happen? can be... I, it's something that's beyond my, my scope but it to hasn't say. Been but it's something for today. It, it, it hasn't been planned, it, what, but it, it absolutely should be. It, it makes sense, and particularly with the, the cost of living um, increases that we're seeing, particularly around heat. And I suppose we're very mindful of it at the moment with the, the, the cold snap. Um, uh, do you know what was interesting there, Lorraine, and I think people will be struck by this, was the fact that while 60% of us worry about, say, the heating and paying the bills, for people... Um, with cancer, it's actually three in every four. It's 75%. Mm -hmm. The worry is much greater because the bills are far higher. The, the costs they're having to pay and, and, and everything. As John pointed is, that, out, is that right when you're in a situation that you're talking about very vulnerable people who Absolutely worrying about a heating bill right. is the last thing they should ever have to do in this situation. Absolutely, I completely agree with you on that and I was quite struck when John said that he lost a number of jobs over the past couple of years because of his cancer diagnosis. So not only are the increasing costs weighing down on them when you're actually mm. out of work as well. So it's something that I, I certainly will be talking to the Minister for Health about and, and hopefully uh, we will be able to see the eligibility for the, the medical cards. Uh, the, the HSE does have the authority to, to grant discretionary medical cards but I take the point on board that yeah. there's a number of very difficult hoops you have to jump okay, through. Because this is would, not the first time. The whole issue of medical cards... I would like to say at the outset that, that we do yeah. have excellent cancer services and access yeah. to high-tech medicines in Ireland. Yeah. And there was major reform done about 20 years, more than that now, about 20 years ago. And it does work as a system. That said, I completely sympathise with the situation here tonight in that mm. there is not the automatic entitlement to a medical card, so there's generally a fallow period there. 
if your chemist will probably charge you or they might not charge you knowing that you're going to get a medical card and the promise of a medical card even with the most efficient people applying you're hard pressed to get one in under eight weeks um, like I've had people apply and they've had everything sorted um, there are real life impacts because number one um, some of the medications have side effects of extreme coldness so you need to keep your house warm if you become sick you miss your treatments and therefore your outcomes aren't as good so it's kind of not very good use of, of, of our, our resources then in terms of the auxiliary things that are needed one thing's only yesterday I think it was um, for patients with chronic lymphedema after treatment many of those compression stockings are 80 and 100 euros mm -hmm. and they're not covered the high-grade ones and then there's some products for radiation burning around the neck that aren't allowed and they could be 50 and 60 euros and it's like pharmacists will always try and sort you out and the doctors will always try and sort you out but I do think there has to be a small bit of flexibility there if a patient arrives in with radiation burns on their neck you should be able to give them a product and if they're getting an injection that's costing the state 4,000 euro surely somebody with a qualification can reimburse a product that's 15 euros um, I think there has to be some give there in the system um, yeah, you know, you just wonder, like, surely this conversation has been had many, many times by people who are advocating for some, um, some leniency, some change in the system to make these things more affordable, and they haven't happened I'm to date. I'm operating beside St. Luke's Hospital for 17 years. Until cancer visited my own family recently, I did not know how complicated things were for people. I hadn't really considered those things. I hadn't considered the impact on work. I hadn't considered... And, it, you know, all the training in the world, uh, there are support groups out there. Mm -hmm. But then I do know from, uh, from recent experiences that you don't often want to be part of a support group. You want to hang out with your family. You know, so, yeah. so it is very complicated I, I and it to, does impact I want outcomes. to bring Michael Healy-Ray in. Um, uh, and Michael, like on this, on this uh, matter, I suppose I'm thinking of transport costs as well and people in rural areas who will have to travel for treatment. And that's one thing that the survey highlighted, that actually people are, you know, doing without food in order to be able to, to travel to appointments. Well, just before that, I have to sympathise with the family of uh, Sean Rooney, Private Sean Rooney, because to die in the service of his country in the interest and in the protection of others. Uh, we, we're, we're also heartbroken for his family. I'm doing a tour this evening of C County Kerry, and I'm actually in Lixna here in North Kerry at the moment, and everyone is devastated, everyone is upset, and I want the family and the extended families, and also of uh, Sean Carney, Trooper Sean Carney, that we're so devastated for what has happened last night. And yes, the investigations will have to take place, but it's going to be a very lonesome and sad and upsetting Christmas for those families, and I just want to acknowledge that. But in answering the question that you've asked, with regard to County Kerry and Cork, our centre of excellence for cancer patients is Cork University Hospital. So on a daily basis, a very good group of people came together a number of years ago and they formed a, a cancer bus service, which transports uh, cancer sufferers from County Kerry to Cork for their treatment. And because of the excellent work that they do, it, it takes that burden and that worry away. And I am so grateful. And all the families who avail of that excellent service are so grateful for the people 
who organize the service, but it's all voluntary. It's uh, voluntary funds from fundraising of all different types. And we are extremely grateful to that excellent group of people yeah, present and in the who organize that right. But specifically, this is something that you would have strongly lobbied on, I suppose, uh, Michael. And there are other issues that are coming up here around providing medical cards to cancer patients and, say, removing hospital car parking charges, um, abolish, abolishing prescription charges. These are things that many may expect should, should already be in place. Well, well, I have to tell you, we actually had it in place. When I started off on the Southern Health Board many years ago, uh, at that time, the diagnosis of cancer, and rightly so, it equaled and entitled a person to a medical card, but not today. Unfortunately, today, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you have to go through all the loopholes, as Kate has already uh, outlined. You have to go through all the application procedures, which is financial, and then produce your medical evidence. But even if you have the very strong medical evidence that you are ill and you have this problem and you need to get to the other side of this journey and you need your medical card, the only way you actually are entitled to a medical card immediately is if the diagnosis is terminal. But uh, And that's bad enough. But for the people who you know, have the hope and the possibility of surviving, which thankfully because of the advances in medicine, but it's a costly journey. Absolutely. And I believe and that any person who has a diagnosis of cancer, they obviously should be automatically entitled to what would be called a discretionary medical care. There is that sense, isn't there, Kevin, that people are trying so hard just to keep their head above water and get through each day that actually, you know, it, it is very hard to lobby and it's very hard to say, you know, they're, they're trying their best to get all these things that they believe that they should be entitled to. They don't know if they're not because there's so many loops to go through. There's a lot of bureaucracy surrounding um, what should be, you would think, simplified for it, people. It's absolutely horrendous. And let's be honest, every family in the country knows this. They've either been close to it or within, within a range of it. The actual system is chronic. The, the services Kate talked about in this country are brilliant. Interaction with, the, interaction with the state in terms of the Department of Social Protection, it is actually, a, I mean, John said he had to give up some work. It is a full-time job, and I don't know, I have some experience of it, I don't know how anybody who is actually quite ill as well as dealing with the, the, the mental strain and the treatments of their diagnosis, I don't know how anybody who's actually old and frail can actually get through the paperwork that's involved in getting some of the supports that are actually there. Um, and you believe, John, do you, that, that there should be kind of a liaison officer, you know, at benefits level yeah, to guide yeah. people through this. Yeah, and the very valid point made there as well, cancer patients or sufferers are probably some of the most vulnerable in our society, some of the most vulnerable citizens. Um, with treatment, etc., it has a huge effect mentally. So I'm sitting here today talking to you, but there's a lot of people that, you know, wouldn't be so capable. And for them to go out and try, you know, it looks great on paper and legislation and everything else, but for individuals mm -hmm. out there at the moment, probably sitting, you know, in their rooms at home and in the cold, the idea of going through a process of making applications, there's a pride aspect to it as well, but there's also the, 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 the capability, the physical aspect, the mental aspect of some of these patients trying to go through this will be re rebuffed very easily. You know, the first hurdle when you're told no or you can't get through, okay. or, you know. 
Yeah, uh, and Lorraine, look, just on, on foot of this, I think it's really highlighted what a lot of people like John would say, look, we, we are going through this, thousands of families are going mm -hmm. through this. Will there be change? Will, will something be done around, around all of this? Because, you yeah. know, there, there's, there's obviously talks of, you know, including people and expanding fuel allowances and Absolutely. other such matters, but whether it actually comes to fruition at all is another thing. Yeah, well, I mean, the hospital charge, the 80 euro hospital charge was abolished and that was a really positive step forward and that was acknowledged uh, by the Irish Cancer Society. And I can just say, Claire, that myself and my colleagues will be lobbying for change, uh, further change in relation to this. There's a number of very... Uh... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sensible asks and I think they should be delivered upon. Every family in Ireland, unfortunately, has been touched by cancer. Okay, briefly, I just want to touch on pressures that we're likely to see on, on the system um, this winter. Um, the HSE spoke today about RSV peaking, but that flu and COVID um, are still all to come um, down the line and they're on the rise at the moment. I think we can have a little um, listen now to Eamon O'Moore, who's Director on National Health Protection at the HSE. This is a winter where we're going to see more than COVID circulating. So we already have high levels of uh, seasonal influenza. We've had very high levels of RSV. We still have levels of COVID around and that's increasing. And we are also seeing other infections like uh, bacterial infections like group A streptococci. So in some ways, this winter is more like previous winters where we would normally have this pathogenic soup uh, in, in, uh, in play. Um, the last few winters have been somewhat abnormal because COVID so dominated. So this winter is very different. A pathogenic soup. Um, it doesn't sound pretty, Kate, but I mean, essentially what we're looking at is increased congestion in our hospitals. They're already arguably a breaking point. We're having these record trolley figures right now. Um, and and you, you would wonder about what we are likely to see now, you know, when the likes of flu and, uh, and COVID, as, ex as is expected, will, will peak in early January. Yeah, we've huge respiratory illness and started early this year. Um, 
people vaccinated early, the, the, the flu vaccine uh, came out and Marty Morrissey did a great job on the radio last week promoting the children's flu vaccines. Um, the strep A issue hasn't helped the situation because that's added another layer of misery for families. And then that ever you know, changing threat of COVID um, as well as whatever version of the flu that will land on. So it's not overly helpful with the cold weather. And the only hope, I suppose, is children are, are, are breaking up from school um, and therefore they won't be as exposed, but maybe going around the country with families. But um, I suppose the advice is at the minute that vulnerable older people are not minding grandchildren, they're not exposed, and people are protecting themselves um, from these respiratory, respiratory illnesses. And I would obviously advise everyone to be flu vaccinated, COVID vaccinated, and any vaccine that you can get. Um, to protect you because the hospitals are under huge pressure. Yeah, and we're also hearing about, of course, the shortage of prescription drugs um, because of a surge in demand for antibiotics as well. We don't have time to get to that, but we will talk about that again because I think it's something that uh, many people are aware of when they've been going um, to get medication. And for the many illnesses that are around, uh, there will have to leave it. My thanks uh, to Lorraine Clifford-Lee, John Walsh, and to Michael Healy-Ray, who joined us on Skype tonight from Kerry. Kevin and Kate will be staying on with me as we take a look at the stories that got us talking this week. Do stay with us. Welcome back. It's been a dramatic week of testimony in the Regency murder trial with former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdall taking to the stand. Well, earlier I spoke to Virgin Media News Court's reporter uh, Deborah Naylor and asked her about the core part of the defence strategy around this testimony. Well, Claire, um, Defence Counsel Brendan Gray, he certainly didn't mince his words when he started in his cross-examination on Tuesday. And he said uh, he was effectively saying that Jonathan Dowdall had lied to the court and he, that he had told two big lies. He said the first lie was in relation uh, to his claim that George the Monkutch collected a key card for the Regency Hotel on the evening before David Byrne was shot dead. And he said he was submitting that the second lie he had told was that Mr Hutch had confessed to the murder. And he has claimed that Jonathan Dowdall tried to make himself out to be a good Samaritan, that he was someone who was attempting to mediate in the hutch Kinahan feud. But what he effectively said when the time came when he needed to, that he tried to actually incriminate Jared Hutch. Um, now, Dowdall, Dowdall, for his part, he claims that the Hutches set him up, that they threw him under the bus. And he said today that he admitted to facilitating the Regency attack because he said he was reckless in booking a hotel room at the Regency, but he claims he did not know at the time what the room was for. So tell us about the, the key evidence that was raised under this cross-examination. A huge amount of evidence in the past few days. I think we've had roughly around 10 hours of cross-examination now. So many topics um, gone through, but there's really... Lies has been a big theme in it. Um, Jonathan Dowdall's lies to Gardaí, um, accusations that he lied, uh, that he lied in this testimony. Uh, he has admitted that he previously lied to a court. And I suppose one instance to give you about this, he was asked in, in length yesterday about his background and his IRA connections and connections to uh, Republican contacts. Uh, contacts. And in particular, he was asked about his friendship with Pierce McCauley. Now, he's uh, a convicted ex-IRA man convicted of killing Detective Gartha, Jerry McCabe. And he was asked whether or not he was friends with him 
and Dowdell said he knew him, but he wasn't friendly with him. He estimated that he went to visit him two to three times when he was in Wheatfield Prison. Um, Mr Graham produced records in court, which he said uh, proved that Dowdell went to see him 14 times between 2015 and 2016. Dowdell said then, well, it's not an offence to be friends with someone or, or visit someone, rather, in prison. And Mr Graham said, well, what is an offence is to lie about your friendship and say this under oath. Today's focus really was on what Dowdell did not tell Guardian. This is when he was interviewed three months after the Regency attack. He was asked if Jerry Hutch had said anything about his involvement in the murder. He said Jerry Hutch never said anything to me about the murder at that time, although it was put to him today that at that point, that is after the fact that he allegedly says then, uh, said then that Jerry Hutch had already confessed to him. So how is Jonathan Dowdell holding up under all this scrutiny? Um, I think it's fair to say today he is coming across as someone at this point who is under stress. He has been in the witness box for three days. He will be there for longer. Um, he has, for his part, claimed that he, uh, he didn't tell Gardaí the truth originally because he said that his family would have been killed. And he actually said when he was charged with the murder of David Byrne, when he was in prison with Mr Hutch, he claimed he lied because he didn't know which guard to speak to. He wanted to ensure his own safety. He's repeatedly said that he didn't make a statement eventually to get the murder charge against him dropped. He wanted to tell the truth about what happened in the Regency. And he has a tendency, he's been accused in court of not being a witness who answers questions directly, who kind of goes off and attacks you know, at times he is someone, I would say, who seems to come under stress, almost seems upset in the witness box at times, but at other times he is someone who can be quite combative. Yesterday he did say at the very end of his evidence, he, he said that um, in relation to his children, well, he said that he didn't care if he was killed. He said, no one will touch my children. He told the court that he would come back and testify against future defendants in the Regency trial. He seems as someone who's very aware of the media. He's very aware of his, of his reputation. He accused the defence today of trying to destroy his reputation. But certainly the stakes in this case could not be higher. He is someone now being assessed for the Witness Protection Programme. His evidence will play a key role in whether or not Mr Hutch is convicted. And that evidence continues um, at the Special Criminal Court for now. Uh, Deborah Naylor, thank you for bringing us up to date on that. Well, let's take a look at some of the big stories that cut our eye this week. Kevin Doyle and Kate O'Connell are still with here, here with me. And I'm also joined by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme. Larry, uh, welcome. I want to talk to you first, I guess, about the ECB rate rise. We did hear that inflation was moderating, but bad news uh, coming again for, for mortgage, uh, mortgage payers, homeowners, um, with this 0.5% rate rise that's coming down the tracks. Absolutely, Claire, and I think that's, that's the light I looked at it in first, is that uh, obviously we know increasing interest rates is um, you know, a, a tool, I suppose, in combating increased inflation. But what it means for people with tracker mortgages every month, it means hundreds of additional uh, that they're going to have to pay out. Uh, over the course of a year, that's a tremendous amount of money. And you're talking about people who are already facing inflation in terms of food prices, consumer pr pr prices. I know petrol has come down, but just about everything else is going sky high. So for these people, it's a real other kick in the teeth. Uh, coming up with a couple hundred extra a month, you're talking over the course of a year, that's a family holiday gone, that's scrimping and saving all year. Uh, it's really tough. And again, these are people who are lucky enough to have a mortgage, to be homeowners, uh, and they're being placed in a horrible situation. But it just shows uh, inflation isn't going to leave us anytime soon. 
No, it's not. And also that we're, we are hearing that there are likely to be more rate rises coming down the tracks as well. Also in line as well with what Eamon Ryan was saying this week, Kate, about, you know, the fact that gas prices aren't going to, you know, drop in the next year or two either. So we are really facing these continuous high prices yeah, and we, we, prices. we better, you know, be well aware of that for the next year or I two. I suppose Things the only thing tight. with the with the interest rates is hopefully the new regulations after the crash will allow wriggle room for families. Mm. But like that, you know, the stress testing was before the inflation and people's lives change and maybe they get things get more expensive or whatever in their own lives. So it is going to be very, very challenging. I don't know any family that's not impacted by the cost of living. The basics for everyone's gone up. And also, you couldn't but turn your heat on the last yeah. few nights, even though. And all this pressure as well. I think people are so aware in the run up to Christmas, well, Christmas as well, when as so well. much is expected, um, especially families with, with young children, and that it can be it can be difficult. But look, uh, let's talk about the big weekend that's coming for uh, the government, the big swap over. Um, Leo comes into play back as Taoiseach again comes Saturday. Um, uh, do you think he's going to come at this a second time as leader anyway differently, Kevin? Do you think there'll be a, a different approach here, um, what he'll set his sights on, or is it more of the same times too? Well, I think in terms of the reshuffle itself and the personnel, reshuffle is probably the wrong word because it's more of a shake than, than actually changing up the personnel. So we're going to end up with a new cabinet that looks incredibly like the old cabinet. Um, so that in itself suggests that it's going to be quite a bit more of the same. It's funny because you hear some of the talk around Fine Gael is how they're going to now put more of a stamp on housing, which is actually going to stay with Fianna Fáil most likely and with Dara O'Brien because by putting down a no-confidence motion last week, People Before Profit basically saved him the job, ironically, um, because the government had to put more confidence in him. So I think... There's so those big jobs aren't going to change. We're not, not going. You don't think we're going to see changes in health and housing and any of those things. There are a couple of names suggested for promotion: Neil Richmond, Jennifer Carroll McNeil. Yeah, there may be some. There'll some be tinkering around the edges. Jack Chambers, another one possibly. So who's in but, trouble? But who's in trouble? That's the problem. They have no one that they want to sack or demote in Christmas week. Um, the name Stephen Donnelly is put out there, but he's been putting up quite a fight uh, to to keep control of the Department of Health, um, and so. Really, we already know most of them. Like, Norma Foley hasn't been promised anything, but it's unlikely he's going to demote the strongest Fianna Fáil woman. Um, Heather Humphreys hasn't been promised anything, but sure, she's covering Heather, um, Helen McEntee's maternity leave and doing her own job. So it'll be um, safe. No big changes afoot. Uh, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, Kate, about something that uh, Leo Varadkar said at the parliamentary party, asking anyone who would take up a, an official role or a ministerial position that they'll tell him... Um, that they'll guarantee that they'll run in the next election. That, that, that there was... you, you almost feel like there was like a, snig a muffled snigger, you know, does he really think we're going to tell him? Like, I mean, I, I can understand why he would do it, because if you reflect on the last five years um, of Fine Gael, or four and a bit years of Fine Gael, pandemic included, there has been a huge attrition rate in terms of, you know, experienced members of the party since Leo became leader. So he probably is trying to succession plan to some extent, um, you know, for the party. But there is a huge movement of people from within Fine Gael over the last four and a half years to the private sector. Mm. And, um, Why are they quitting the party, Kate? There's also a round uh, of European oh, jobs coming oh. up at the end of this uh, cycle before the next election. Yes, yeah, so that's well. going to be quitting the party, Kate. I don't know. Perhaps it's more lucrative. I don't know about the party, but I mean, in terms of the private sector, perhaps it's more lucrative. It seems to serve time in a government seems to be very good for one CV, is all I know. 
um, it seems to be nearly worth a couple of years in cap, but it's nearly worth about PhD. <laughs> so um, it's um, it is a lucrative thing to have on your CV, but also there seems to be a demand for whatever reason in the private lobbying se sector globally um, for former politicians. Very interesting. It in doesn't terms of say much. Like you would say, does it say a lot about politicians that they're willing, like, just to you know follow the money there, Larry? I don't know. It's just, but if you if you should put it on a kind of reasons, you know, yeah, there could, could be other be reasons, different yeah. times in their lives. Well, maybe, maybe, but uh, well, to, to an extent, Claire. I mean, I, I think politicians are, are ordinary human beings, just like the rest of us, and I don't don't think we should discount that. But in terms of this weekend, uh, this really, and I suppose looking ahead, uh, this really is gut check time for Leo Varadkar. I mean, if we revert a few years, and I know Kate was involved in this, but in terms of the leadership battle for Fine Gael, the feeling really was that Leo Varadkar would be a wonder kid in terms of their electoral fortunes. Mm. That really hasn't borne out to be the case thus far, and really is now the next couple of years. What he does and what happens during his tenure, uh, I think, is going to be very important for the future fortunes uh, of Fine Gael. That's the space I'm watching. I'm also watching, to be fair, uh, Michal Martin, who I think has done a reasonably good job in difficult times uh, as Taoiseach, uh, to see now everyone thinks he's going to the Department of Foreign Affairs. I suspect that will happen, uh, and what that might bode for his future. So it's going to be interesting on to watch. That, on that point, it's, it's actually interesting, and it was a point that Bertie Ahern made recently, that Micheál Martin's done quite a lot to keep the government cohesive, the three-party coalition working together, and the government has been remarkably stable, let's be honest. We thought in the first few weeks it was all going to fall apart, and now it looks like it'll go five years. And he did that perhaps at the cost of Fianna Fáil's own popularity. And Fine Gael have been the ones that have made a small creep in the poll upward. Leo Varadkar much more likely to put Fine Gael's position and to push party politics more than the government, uh, or at least that's certainly the suspicion, which could irk it's some in Fianna Fáil. It's his advantage, isn't it, now? Because like, yeah. he can be front and centre with the party because, you know, he's coming in second time as leader. Uh, he wants to leave, the, I presume, he, he wants to leave some sort of legacy. Do you think he has He wants he to win the next election. Is, is Key to that, he's, yeah. as, as Larry says, he's never won an election, actually. So. And, the, and the question becomes, in that context, has some of the gloss gone off the shine? That's the key question in terms of the Irish people. I mean, one of the things uh, instructive, a very interesting poll figure recently was that the majority of Irish people didn't want to see a transfer in terms of uh, Leo becoming Taoiseach instead of Michal. So how that all plays out and how he performs, I think, is going to be fascinating. Yeah, it could uh, provide more po more problems for the coalition and how it all beds down with this uh, switchover of leadership. Uh, to talk briefly about the World Cup, it's the final um, this weekend. I think it's been, I think people have been very entertained by it. Would I be right or am I just talking about my own household uh, where my seven-year-old tells me the real battle this weekend is between uh, Messi and Mbappe, the, the world's best players in this uh, final between yeah, Argentina and France. You just took France. that as your knowledge, uh, that's, that's, that's your it research team. There. It ends there. <laughs> I know, all my knowledge is from the seven-year-old. Yeah. No, I think he's dead right. Um, it, it has, I'm kind of a convert, not to the Qataris or any of that, that's all still there, but actually winter football has been very entertaining and it's actually been nice to sit at home on a Tuesday night. And I know it delayed you a, a few nights and stuff, but it's been nice to sit at home and watch football. Um, and the final, actually, at the end of it all, there's lots of good stories out of this World Cup in terms of the actual football uh, between Morocco, between the early shocks for some of the big. Um, and let's be honest, like Messi, people will love to see Messi win a World Cup. It's, it's, it's missing from his, mm -hmm. his trophy cabinet. And he's the opposite of Ronaldo. Both Messi and Ronaldo deserve to have World Cup medals. 
but nobody wants to see Ronaldo get one. They do want to see Messi. So maybe it has the fairy tale ending as well. Uh, briefly, Kate, do you think people have put the controversies to one side then and have focused on the football for this World Cup? I, I think it. I think it has impacted how I suppose children and families look at it. I. I think we would have been more engaged if it wasn't in Qatar. And I'm one of the kids of Italia 90, like I was 10 then, and we went mad in Italia. I never forget it. Who it's can such forget a it? memory. So <laughs> I, I do think it is less um, this year. Mm. I, I think I'd be sort of against having it on and supporting it. All right, OK. Uh, Larry, I take it you're happy with it all and looking forward to the final this weekend, are you? Yeah, I mean, even me, a typical American who doesn't like soccer, I've, I've even warmed to it. But I don't think we should forget about the circumstances yeah. this unfolded or how FIFA behaved throughout this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the controversies that were so strongly, I suppose, highlighted at the start and then the football, in a way, sort of got in the way or took over. Um, we'll leave it there for now, but lots more coming up after the break. So do stay with us. Kevin Doyle, Kate O'Connell and Larry Donnelly are still here with me. Uh, we're going to talk about the weather now. And Laurie, Larry, I'm very conscious saying this uh, as someone who's from Boston and well used to the cold weather. How are you finding it this week? Do you think that we're kind of over-egging it? Well, I mean, today there was a let-up. I thought today was okay, actually. But certainly a couple of days earlier this week were as cold as I can remember. I've lived here for 20 years, and it was Boston cold mm -hmm. this week. It really, really was absolutely frigid. Uh, and again, um, you know, to, to go back to other stuff we were talking about, to think about people who are making very difficult decisions about turning the heating on and everything else. Uh, it's too cold. You can't make that choice. You have to put the heat on. Uh, and it's scary in that respect. So, yeah, I mean, some of the panic may be overdone, but uh, it is very, very cold out there. There's no question about it. And again, from my vantage point, saying that, that's something. Yeah, I think we're also wary about the heating, too. It's probably, like, adding to this sort of anxiety about the weather, where it's going, and then uh, the bills <laughs> that'll be at the end of it all. Um, let's talk now about uh, the big couple in the spotlight this week. This is Meghan and Harry and their Netflix documentary that's making so many headlines. You don't actually need to watch it, Kate, to know what's what's happening and what's being announced. Yes. Yeah, but um... so, oh yeah, we can see a little bit there. Now that's some of the trailer. Um, it's all very glossy and lots of loved up shots of Harry and Meghan there, but they're also revealing an awful lot and not holding back. You've been watching it, Kate, have you? Yeah, it's, it's an odd experience. I move from completely going, oh my God, are you the most spoiled, selfish people on the planet, to going, you're only a young couple, I can understand how this was awful. You see how she was treated. And then, I think one of the shots was there, you know, there was a picture of, this was the night when we had an argument, we discussed the future after whatever event. Like, who had the, in the corner in the kitchen taking the picture when they were having this conversation? <laughs> you know, there was another thing in, I think, one of the episodes, I haven't seen the three now, or today, but um, <laughs> she was shocked that all these people were on the side of the road when she was going to get married. I mean, they, everybody knows that um, from whatever. But like that, you can see how the life they wanted to lead was impossible for them. Um, and mm. you can understand why they're doing it for their family. 
But it is kind of entertaining, but at times I find it really sad, a really sad insight into a family. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It'll, it'll be amazing to see where it, where, where it all yeah, ends where up. Where it all ends, because it is really exposing the institution as well, that many um, in Britain hold dearly, uh, the royals. But you'd wonder with the, the, the passing of Queen Elizabeth this year and then, you know, Harry and Meghan exposing um, their own experience, it can't do the monarchy really any favours. You, you would wonder, uh, can it survive? Yeah, like it, it's quite funny when you think that this couple were once sent to Dublin on their mini moon to help with Brexit relations. Um, and we that met they're... Them with Michael Healy Ray, the two <laughs> of us met them. <laughs> and, and like that was their role in the world, that was their job. And now their job in the world seems to be to destroy the very thing that Harry was born to protect. Um, I, I, I actually, I don't know if I'm doing this right or wrong, but I find it all very entertaining. I, I actually, I've watched the first three episodes of it, three hours of my life that I'm never getting back. But at the same time, if you don't take it too seriously, um, it's actually good television, for want of a better word. And they did it with Netflix, who made The Crown. Um, yeah. And you're kind of like, there's so you're not that upset about The Crown. You're talking about all the media an coverage. Awful, there's an awful lot of money being made. Million. That much is true. Briefly, Larry, I want to talk to you about Donald Trump because he, he had this major announcement to make um, today. And then it was like, what, you know, what's he going to announce? What's the speculation around this? And it turns out that actually he's selling digital superhero cards. Please explain this. Yeah, this the, is not a wind-up. He, he posted a video on, on True, True Social, his platform, uh, of him in a Superman costume saying a major announcement was coming up. Uh, a lot of people thought that that might be he's going to announce a running mate, uh, he might be rejoining the Twitter platform, uh, but no, it is that he's selling these digital cards at a price of $99 that you can all get. Uh, if you'd like them. Uh, but the bigger problem here for Donald Trump is that uh, recent polls show him fading very fast in the Republican primary. Ron DeSantis is climbing uh, very quickly. Uh, Donald Trump's got a real big po political problem on his hands. Uh, and every time he does something like this, he increasingly fades to parity. Yeah, and uh, you'd wonder, I'd say he's more to worry about now than people buying those $99 superhero cards. Uh, there we will leave it. That is it from us. Thanks to Larry and to Kate, to Kevin. Our program is available um, as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.